Gamble On, the weekly podcast presented by usbets.com, is your ticket to staying on top of everything happening in the gambling world. It's hosted by me, Eric Raskin. And by me, John Brennan. Gamble On gives you the news of the week, interviews with professional gamblers and industry insiders, and weekly sports picks from a couple of journalists who, on a good day, can do passable impressions of sharp bettors. Plus, Gamble On gives you the occasional dose of self-deprecating humor. Subscribe on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. Gamble on, everybody. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Another edition here of the Get a Grip podcast here on Sports Handle. We are on episode number 11. I am Dan Bach. You can find me over there uh, on Twitter at Dan underscore Bach, director of media over there at Roto Grinders. Do a lot of work across uh, a whole network of sites on Better Collective. Uh, and excited today because Sherpan's still out on the East Coast. I think uh, last look I saw he was out there in Fenway Park. So uh, he's enjoying himself getting away from, you know, that Vegas heat and get some East Coast heat. But joining us today, uh, we call out the, the big hitter here. We go to ESPN uh, ESPN chalk writer. He's been with them for a while and somebody who's been covering the gambling industry for a long, long time, certainly uh, pre PASPA. And he's seen a lot. It's David Purdom of ESPN.com. David, thanks for uh, pinch hitting today and joining us here on the podcast. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. We got to get uh, Big Dave Sherpan back back in the mix, huh? He's, he's been gone for a week or so. Well, it's it's crazy. He's been uh, out east. He's got a lot of family stuff doing softball, and and I get it. You know, you're a you're a soccer coach. You said of your of your daughter's um, team, I believe. And for me, I did one year one year of coaching, and it was basketball, and I learned very quickly it wasn't for me. I no. was not for me way too competitive. Maybe like if they were older, I could, I could do it, but um, wasn't, wasn't my cup of tea. So now I just watch from the stands and uh, it, it's not bad because you can, you know, my, my, most of my son, my son does gymnastics. I'm not sure if you're familiar with how this works in terms of uh, watching sports, but your, your kid only goes for like 30 seconds. So right. I really got to pay attention for like 30 seconds and then I can go back to my phone and sweat my bets or my games or my <laughs> fantasy or what else I'm doing. So it, it actually is the perfect sport for me, but, uh, but thanks for jumping on. It's, it's great talking with you. We've had a ton of conversations over the years, a lot of it around fantasy and uh, you know, obviously on sports handle, we're covering the news around uh, sports betting and that's, you know, obviously your forte out there at ESPN and you know, I, I want to kind of start with um, a macro view here because you've been covering the industry uh, pre-PASPA, but it's we're coming on just, what, three years, I believe, of that anniversary just passed of PASPA being struck down. And we talked about it on the podcast a little bit and gave our thoughts, but I want to hear your impressions uh, of the kind of betting market three years removed from that landmark decision by the Supreme Court and just uh, and where we are today, just expectations, have they been met? Um, and just kind of overall thoughts on that. Sure. You know, in terms of the numbers of states, I think we're right at 30 that have passed legislation, sports betting legislation now. I think only two states in the United uh, in the nation have not uh, kind of inter even introduced sports betting legislation. That's Utah. And you know what the other one is? Hawaii? Wisconsin. 
Oh, yes, yes, yes. Wisconsin, only two, which is kind of surprising. Uh, I'm also surprised a little bit that Ohio and Massachusetts haven't got it done. I thought they would get it done by now. Uh, they're both trills trying to. It seems inevitable, but it's taking longer. Uh, in terms of handle, continues to grow. And we're getting more visibility uh, into it as the more states uh, legalize it. Uh, we're going to see how much Americans enjoy betting and how much they were betting already betting really is what we're trying to see. Now, you know, there is a percentage of new bettors, of course, that are coming in saying, okay, I want to try this now because it, it is legal and authorized. Uh, but uh, the majority of them, the vast majority, I would even venture to say, uh, we're already betting and we're starting to see how much they were betting. So uh, those are probably my two just over big picture things. Um, I think we're on pace. The 30 states is about what I... Uh, expected excuse me um and then you know those two states ohio and massachusetts i mentioned uh, I, i'm a little surprised they didn't and in terms of handle i think we're getting there as well i am still dumbfounded that massachusetts is a done deal yeah. i mean especially when you consider going back to even the fantasy world they were the first state to come up with regulations around daily fantasy mm -hmm. and you've got the arguably one of if not the biggest operator in the U.S. and DraftKings with their headquarters, you know, out there in Boston, and they still haven't they still haven't been able to push something across the finish line. Like that is absolutely shocking to me, especially knowing how much you know pull and how much lobbying that these sports books and these companies have in terms of creating legislation. I would have thought Massachusetts would have been one of the earliest and here we are just a good chance it's not even going to get done this year it's shocking to me it really is and you you stole my words i, I was gonna say just how much influence and pull and lobbying power DraftKings has showed in other states and for them not to be able to do it where they're low, headquartered is pretty crazy now let's take a look at the landscape from the operator side of things and you know every state is different um but one thing that we've seen across the board is, you know, the daily fantasy sites, FanDuel and DraftKings have gained a large market share in pretty much every single market that they, that they've gone to. So um, are there, is, are there any surprises from your perspective in terms of what the market is from the operator side of things? Because, you know, I think we suspected these, these two would, would be strong, but um Right now, like they're borderline dominant. So uh, kind of give us a, an overview on, on, on that side of you know, the, the last three years. Their dominance and their magnitude of that dominance is very impressive and, and surprising to me. I thought the established operators, the MGMs, uh, maybe your William Hills, your Caesars, uh, I thought they would be more competitive early going, but they aren't. I mean, the, the numbers show it. It's, it's DraftKings and FanDuel and then everybody else especially in New Jersey, uh, it, it's pretty, uh, you know, eye glaring. So why do you think that is? I, that though? has surprised What's why, that? Do you, why do you think that is? Because, you know, I, I think, you know, we all you know, have the idea that it's, it's the customer base, but uh, I, I'm still surprised that there hasn't been greater momentum. And I think maybe MGM is starting to, to, to get a little yeah. bit more of it. But, you know, it seems like these two brands and, you know, we've seen Barstool come into the, the fold and, and they always start hot and then they kind of drop off. So why do you think it is that these two have been able to, you know, maintain this success over this kind of three-year period? Because it's, it's not really dwindling too much. 
No, and you mentioned the number one thing. It is the customer base. They had a, a massive community already built of sports fans who, who like to be engaged in the games through daily fantasy. The second thing, though, is, is their tech was better than everybody's to begin with. Their apps were better. They were easier to navigate through. I mean, you still go onto some apps of other companies and you got to scroll through 50 things going down to, to find something where you go to a, a DraftKings or a FanDuel and you can pretty much two click and get to where you want to get. So I think their technology is, was better uh, in addition to, to their customer base. No doubt. I, I, I'm glad you brought up technology too, because I'm in full agreement. Um, it, it's night and day. And I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, these other older brands, you know, in Nevada, mm -hmm. it wasn't a big deal there. You know, it wasn't something that they even had to really think about because the way that law was written um, and the way that they regulate their gaming where FanDuel and DraftKings, uh, they already knew what a mobile customer wanted in their app. And I completely agree. And here's a, you know, I like to think some, some sports books might listen to this show. I, I like to think that, well, here's, here's something for you. Every, every sports book should have this face ID on their, on their phones, because there's nothing, there's not a bigger pain in the butt than typing in your password every single time you log in. So uh, whenever I'm in these regulated States, uh, convenience matters. And I always find myself going to those, to those sports books where, it's a lot easier to, you know, actually log in versus the hassle of constantly being logged out, constantly retyping passwords. And convenience matters. It absolutely matters. Absolutely. And I totally agree that the logging out, I, I don't mind necessarily logging in, but if I get logged out after five to 10 minutes of just looking, and I'm using it mostly for just trying to search and see what the numbers are, see what the market's like. And I got to log in every five to 10 minutes because I wasn't active. I mean, that's, that's a pain in the butt. So I love you on Twitter, by the way, David, because you always stand up for yourself or a lot of these writers and maybe myself sometimes included somebody who gets critical of something I do. I just, I don't block them. I just ignore them. But you recently kind of got into it with, uh, with captain Jack and some of these sharp players. I believe the tweet was, was talking about percentage bets um, in money bet that was forwarded over to you. You know, we get press releases all the time in the media about this stuff. And, and basically they were, 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 their comments were along the lines of, um, you know, how sharp are those books or how much do those, those numbers matter? And, you know, you, you stand, stand up for yourself a little bit against these guys. And, and I ask you what, you know, what will be the role of, you know, sharp betters, you know, people who are the best people who do this for a living in this current market, because it, it really feels right now, like there's a lot of frustration by them. And I mm -hmm. think a lot of time it boils over towards people in the media, like yourself. And, you know, how do you handle like what you should report? Because again, what's interesting to one better might be scoffed at by another. So I, I want to know the challenges that you go through and ultimately what is their role, do you think, in this current landscape? Because in, in its current form, um, it, it seems like they're getting frozen out in a, in a lot of places. Yeah, and I, I would note that sharp betters were frustrated before legalization, would come at me for before legalization, and they're frustrated afterwards. They have, they're, they're disgruntled and in some ways, I completely understand it because 
this is their living. This is something they dedicate. This is something they're passionate about. And when they work hard at it and get good enough to make a living off this and win, and the books say, you know what, you're not playing with us anymore. They take their ball and go home. That's got to be frustrating. And I think, you know, they're almost destined to be disgruntled. Now, the betting percentages that we all get and we split, do I think they have a handicapping um, value? No, not really. Uh, other people do disagree with me, and that's part of sports betting. It's a little bit of art, a little bit of science. But I don't tweet them out to be a handicapping tool. I tweet them out to give people a snapshot of this is what the betting is like on this big game. You know, it was NBA uh, playoffs. This is what the betting is like on, on Nets Bucks or whoever it was at the time. And to me, it's a statistic. It's like a, a box score almost. I'm, I'm just putting it out there showing here's what's going on at the sports books. And other people think that, oh, no, you're misleading them. And you're trying to make them think people should use them to yeah. bet. And I'm not. I, I, I don't see how that you can make that jump, you know. And I guess my final question about it would be, and I'll go back into what I think the future role of Sharps would be, is that my job is to cover what happens in the sports betting market, right? In the sports betting industry. If I am discouraged or criticized for reporting what's happening at the sports books, how am I ever supposed to do a job? I, I, you couldn't. You just, you, this is something that I'm going to report on. It is something my job is to report on what's going on. And I would note some of the critics got in my direct messages afterwards and apologized because they, they did not understand that. So, yeah. And, that, you know, yeah, it's interesting though, because, um, like you say, it's not like you're publishing something that, you know, DraftKings is giving to you that says, maybe if he publishes this, more people will take the other side. And well, that, that's, that's not the purpose of it. It's, it's exactly like you mentioned before in that, you know, it's, do people find it interesting? And I think you even put out a poll afterwards and it was like 80% or something. I don't remember what the exact number was, but it was overwhelming. The answer was yes, there were people who cared about that information. So, you know, I've always felt this way, whether it's fantasy, whether it's sports betting, to each their own, you know, everybody's process in terms of what they come up with to come to a conclusion to what side they want to take a bet or to grab a bet. That's up to them to decide. And mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's frustrating to me to see people often criticize others and say, no, that's not relevant. No, like, yeah, like it's not relevant to me. I don't care about it, but if other people want to use that metric, fine. It's like in, in the old world of fantasy, daily fantasy sports, oh, does batter versus pitcher matter? You know, sure. does the historical stats matter? You know, half of the people will say, no, it doesn't. Half of the people will say, yes, it does. So my viewpoint is put it out there. And if you want to use it, great. If you don't want to use it, great. But when people get on their high horses and pretend like what the process that other people are using is, is a hundred percent wrong. I find kind of annoying. Like, why do you care? Especially in this world where it's, it's person versus sports book, you know, it's, it's mm -hmm. everybody has the same end goal and you might be thinking that you're helping them, but at the end of the day, it's still entertainment, David, like 95% of the people who play in, in our sports betters are people who do it for a one hour, two hour, three hour sweat on a game. 
And I think it yep. gets forgotten way too often. I think that goes into the bigger picture of what we talked about uh, of the sharks being frustrated. And I had, I got, sorry about that. That is quite the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a, a Juno like the ringtone. I like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, it goes back to what I mentioned before that the sharp players are almost destined to be frustrated because of how the market treats them. And I understand that. And you ask, what role do we expect them to have? I hope it's an increased role, actually. I hope they get more access to it. And I hope that as the market grows, that sports books are going to be more willing uh, to take their action. Um, I really do, because those are smart guys, and they are probably the most passionate sports bettors there are. So I hope maybe, they get to take care of. Well, maybe However, you can speak to this, though. How is this a problem everywhere? Again, I'm more in the yes. world of the U, of U.S. regulated gaming, less familiar with what's happening in Europe and a lot of other you know gaming markets. Is this common practice everywhere? Or is there any places out there? I mean, people always talk, you know, about the Pinnacle, for example. That's the that's where the sharp guys go. I mean, how how do these sharp players, or how can a book continue to make money and be profitable by booking sharp action? Because at the end of the day, we know like the role of these these sports books is to make money. That's what they do. They have shareholders right. um, that want them to be profitable and it doesn't take a genius to say, hey, if this guy's kicking our ass, we're better served not taking his taking their bets. 100%. And it is a practice that was uh, been long established in, in the European market, uh, in the UK. Um, and a lot of these companies now that have come over here have uh, UK you know, uh, tentacles. Um, so it is a practice between, and it was a practice in Nevada too, before this. So, you know, if they found that they didn't like your action, uh, that maybe that you were playing, you know, monopolizing the app and just sitting on there and taking numbers that are off the market, off market numbers. Uh, you know, sometimes they just didn't want to deal with it anymore. And so they would, would kick them out and not let them uh, play there. And that's unfortunate, but it is their business decision. And as you said, if these companies thought, hey, if we start taking this money from these sharp guys, we'll make more money ourselves, they would do that. They do not think that. They think they will lose more money or not make as much more money if they take sharp action. And I think another thing to notice, and you mentioned Pinnacle. Well, there's one Pinnacle, there's one Bet Chris, uh, there's a couple of big books in Asia, uh, Circa. Uh, these are books that are, are known to cater to professional bettors, but I just named four or five, right? I could probably go into the hundreds of recreational books. So I think there's a reason why that is the case. One business model is more efficient, is uh, easier uh, to operate and turn a profit. And the other one takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of volume that some of these books may not have. And so they have to go about their own way. And uh, again, it is unfortunate um, for, for the professional betters, um, but it's, kind of a fact of the matter at this point yeah I'm, I'm interested to see how circa evolves here in the more in the regulated market i know that they're obviously in nevada and i think they're going to be in colorado soon and i I'd, I'd love to see their expansion in in one market in particular and i want to kind of jump onto this real quick is you know arizona is going to open up here in the fall and it's a really unique market in that 
there's been no daily fantasy in Arizona. Hasn't been allowed. So right. every single market that's opened up, it's FanDuel and DraftKings go to their, their uh, base of players, got a huge account list. Everybody knows them. They already have the app downloaded. They're ready to go. Well, in Arizona, that's not the case because th they haven't been able to operate since the beginning for, for 10 plus years where they've had, you know, advantages in these other states. And I really think it's a great test case. And if I was an emerging book, I think I'd look at that market and say, maybe this is our spot where we can really win and focus a lot of our marketing and be more aggressive in trying to grab customer base from the offset. Because, you know, every other market, there's a first mover advantage. Arizona doesn't have one. I mean, yes, they have national branding. That does help. But at the end of the day, the fraction of the number of people have the FanDuel and DraftKings fantasy app than they do in every other state out there. So I'm super intrigued to see what's going to happen there. Very interesting point. Yeah, it's a very interesting point. Arizona's one. I've really enjoyed watching Colorado's market evolve too. Uh, I think that some of those states, you know, they talk about Nevada and, and the sports leagues would used to tell me this when they were going through it. They're like, look, Nevada is a sharp centered market. It's not going to get any sharper anywhere else than Nevada. And I was kind of, well, I don't know about that. People are, they're sharp betters all over the nation, but it's it sort of played out to, to be true. Uh, in, in many ways that there are so many uh, less experienced betters in other states than there are in Nevada. So how those books decide and, and work with that clientele, it will be interesting. All right, let's get into uh, an app that's about to launch out there in New Jersey. Uh, people love talking about betting exchanges and we apparently have our first here, a, a company called Sport Trade is really taking in a, a very interesting approach here, you know, in terms of setting up their, their trading more like, you know, the NASDAQ, like a stock market, as opposed to your, your typical, you know, sports book. And you know, there's a lot of excitement around it. I know all the, the sharp, the sharps out there love this idea. Um, I ask you, uh, do you think this is going to work? You think sport trade will be able to garner much traction in New Jersey and, uh, and down the road? I certainly hope so, because I do believe uh, an exchange model is a net gain for the industry, a net gain for the, the market, just because of how they work. You know, they're not, uh, it's not house first player, they're matching players and taking sort of a commission. Um, they are popular in the UK with the sharper betters and so forth. The problem that sport trade is going to run into is the limitation of not being able to take bets across state lines. So you're going to have a, a volume issue. Um, is there enough volume in New Jersey for it to take off? It's going to be close. It, it, it's going to be tough. But the, the guys that run that are very smart. Uh, and I think that they are giving it a good go. And I know they have the support of those passionate professionals that we mentioned. Uh, so hopefully it will uh, take off a little bit and, you know, get some footing there. And then we'll see it in other uh, states. I, I am one that believes, you know, down the road when this market is fully uh, matured and it involves and we somehow get rid of that wire act that is so outdated that's preventing sta uh, states from taking bets across state lines. Uh, that we might have a nationwide sports betting exchange. And at that point, it'll be very, very interesting to watch because then you will have that volume that you need to, to kind of operate one of those. But that's such an unknown and when, when or if that's ever going to happen. Yes. And it's like, how long can you tread water state by state 
to get to that point. And even if you do get to that point, who's to say a, a company like FanDuel, who um, has experience from you know the Betfair side of things to turn that model on very, very quickly here in the US. Like I'm with you, I'd love to see it work, but I also agree with the limitations. And you know, I think them starting in New Jersey where you've got you know, 15, 20 books or whatever, it's a tough, tough uh, place to crack, but it's also the first one that is giving them the ability to, to, to do it. So you know, that's the other thing is, are all these regulations set up state by state to even allow this type of thing? And, right. you know, it, it kind of goes back to that last point I said, like, well, for Arizona, for example, like if you want to get in off the ground floor with everybody else on an equal kind of spot, that seems like a great place to potentially do it. But who knows whether or not they're they're you know, they even fit under the language of that law. So, you know, I, I'm complete lockstep with you about loving the idea but knowing the challenges are going to be incredibly difficult, but um, you know, kudos to them for, you know, trucking forward and they've raised a lot of capital and they got a lot of believers behind them. And um, it's probably the biggest innovation we've seen in sports betting in the U S I mean, looking at everything out there, it's all pretty much boilerplate. This is the one thing that's kind of happened that is, uh, is outside the box. You think we'll ever uh, possibly see the operator of one of those changes being the NFL, for example? They would not have a stake in the outcome of the bets. They would only have a, a commission, a percentage of the handle. I just wonder, they seem to be very, uh, even a little more aggressive than I expected them to be in willingness. I mean, we have the Washington football team owns a betting license at this time. Um, so I, I just wonder how far uh, one of these sports leagues uh, would go in terms of uh, dipping their toes into the water of sports betting. That's interesting. Cause I don't really know that. Like, I mean, is anybody looking, cause again, back to Arizona, I hate to keep going back there, but again, all these different teams will have, you know, licenses, the ability mm-hmm. to, to have sports books. And I just, I think that publicly people are kind of over the idea of, you know, uh, th- it being a conflict of interest. Right. You know, I think back in the day when it was, when they were trying to not allow betting for God for knows what reason, looking at, you know, what's transpired, but, you know, that was just kind of like a straw man. It didn't make any sense. It was red herring. It, it wasn't real. Like, sure. I think we're at a point where, you know, everybody got to feel that the conflict of interest doesn't really exist. And, and it's funny because I think I'd be very curious. I, I love to go into the mind of these sports leagues. I'm sure they'd change a lot of the stuff they said, but the whole idea that they came up with like integrity fee was the way that they were going to monetize, right. that they were going to make money and talk about like something completely blowing up in their face. Like there are so many ways for them to make money off of betting. And that was the way that they were, that they wanted to do it. I, I don't know who came up with that with that theory or that plan, but um, especially because the labeling of integrity, it, it's just mocked now by everybody. That person, um, I, I don't know if they're still employed, but uh, that was that was a big failure of theirs because honestly, the better avenue is what we're seeing. Be the ones to have licenses that you can sell to FanDuel and DraftKings, and you kick your and and everybody else and take your five, 6%, whatever you want, 
that's that's the path, right? I yep. mean, that's the path. It, it keeps you that one degree separation from actually uh, accepting the bets and you still make money off of it. So I, I, I agree that the integrity fee that turned into a, you know, a meme on, on Twitter, basically just over and over and over when you got the Astros with their cheating scandal uh, and all of that, just over and over, it, it just really backfired on them. Do you think the betting media, because we've seen more and more of it, do you think, um, I, I don't think we're too far. I don't think we're too much at all. Do you think it's going to get to a point where it's too far? And what do you think the future looks like in terms of betting broadcasts and whatnot? Because we've seen a few of them out there and I never really ga- get a ga- good gauge about how successful they actually are. So what do you think we're going to see in that, in that space? Cause there's been a I lot of movement we'll, lately. Yeah. I do think we're going to stay divided in terms of alternate streams. One are bet casts and one are your traditional uh, game broadcasts. I also think that the traditional game broadcasts will implement more gambling talk, more odds, and won't always be uh, the, the little veiled references that we all get a kind of a chuckle out of, which I personally kind of like and, and, <laughs> and think they're funny. Uh, but I, I do think it'll be more, um, you know, in your face, transparent. Um, but I think they'll also kind of try to keep a balance of it. Um, I know the NBA, when they launched their own betting show and they talked a little bit about the advertising, about having only a percentage uh, of the time of a broadcast that can be used uh, for uh, FanDuel ads or whatever. And if you watched any of the NBA playoffs, there are plenty of FanDuel ads for sure uh, on them. So maybe they even scale it back a little bit uh, at the time. So it's kind of that balancing act right now, right? Uh, you're trying to make money off this industry without turning away uh, people that aren't interested in it. So it's a balancing act. And I think the leagues have been a little more aggressive than I expected, really. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I tend to agree. I think it's, um, I think it's going to be interesting to see how it how it moves because the one thing that we know and, and we're both kind of in the media world is yes ratings quote unquote matter but sponsorship is what really matters if people are willing to pay to put their name on something it you know you'd say like well if it doesn't have viewers why would people pay well because the viewers that they have are really important to the message that these sponsors want to put across. So, you know, I think as long as there's sponsorship dollars associated with it, I think we're going to see more and more kind of gambling media, you know, out there. I don't think it's ever going to become something that's, um, that's huge. And it's funny because I, I talk a little bit to some of the European counterparts, you know, that we have, and it's not really a thing out in Europe. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's crazy. Like, you know, the idea of podcasts and, and shows talking about betting doesn't really exist in my understanding. It's more of something that, you know, um, we're kind of almost inventing here in the U.S. And that's, that's interesting considering how long that market has existed. So, you know, maybe the demand for it isn't as much as we really think in the long term. It'd be interesting to see. The Euro people tried it. Um, there's Sky Sports over there, which operated yeah. a sports book. It just never took off. It's just never been very successful. Um, we'll just kind of have to see, I, you know, the, the seriousness that the U.S. market, uh, the, the betters that, that take this, um, 
is you know that's something that uk guys tell me it's like gosh you guys take it so much more seriously than it is over here we got guys playing five dollar parlays that's that's the bulk of our action over here these guys are you know breaking down player props and, and everything and that's that they enjoy and i kind of enjoy that part of it too the handicapping aspect of it so maybe that seriousness and the way the passion that the american betters have for the industry will help the media companies exceed and if i can make one last point on that it's very interesting to me and this kind of goes back to our previous discussion about how whenever i put out a, a factoid or something they immediately think that i'm trying to teach somebody or tell them hey use this in betting and i think that stems back from before this market came to the mainstream it was all touts right it, that that was your media coverage it was touts giving picks out making analysis and doing that so now that we have traditional news reporters i'm a traditional newspaper reporter and trying to cover it just from a news angle this is what's happening in this market that's growing so big this is all that's going on people automatically think well he's trying to tell them how to bet that's not how i would bet and like you said you know nobody if anybody had a hundred percent way to, to bet everybody would be doing it by this part so i, I think that's a, one of the elements that causes the difficulty and the misunderstanding uh from betters is that they're used to for so long having touts telling them who to bet and giving them information to try to help them bet compared to now where there's a lot more just traditional mainstream news coverage of the industry. Okay, a couple of uh, final things here before we let you go. Um, and I, I, I'm asking you this and I know you have no say and no knowledge or anything, but in five years from now, do you think there's any chance that ESPN has any sort of licensed or any sort of involvement in their own sports book because I look at sports brands out there and we've seen Barstool do it. We just saw Sports Illustrated do a deal with, I think it was Valley's. I mean, the, the gem of it all is ESPN. It's the mm -hmm. biggest sports brand in the U S and probably the world. And it's the one thing that's never spoken about in terms of, being a being an actual sports book you know yeah you've got your deal with caesars and uh, you're taking advertising from everywhere and believe me those things are always going to exist because you have sports fans watching your show but in terms of actually like a big competitor from a brand standpoint to compete with with these these monstrosities that we have today espn's the golden goose and nobody and i mean nobody has really brought them up as a realistic target and you know, I know you can only speak to so much on this, but uh, mm -hmm. I'm a little surprised that, you know, there hasn't been a larger, you know, discussion because I've even in the, in the last conference I went to, people mentioned Apple, people mentioned Facebook, people mentioned Amazon. Are they going to get into the sports book business? Nobody mentioned ESPN. Quick thoughts on all that. As you mentioned, you know, ESPN does a very good job of keeping me separate from any kind of business associations because I would feel obligated to report it as sure. a reporter if I was to learn something. So I don't have any inside information. It is obviously there have been reports uh, that there have been, you know, people reaching out trying to find out uh, if ESPN is going to become an operator or what role they are going to play. And I think it's still up in the air. I really believe that they have not decided and they're just kind of looking at, at all options at this time. I wish I could give you some huge breaking story, but I <laughs> seriously do not know. And they, that's something I've learned through my 
boy, this is going to be eight years I've been working here now. Uh, they do a very good job of separating the business and the journalism aspect because, and it helps me out. Again, if, if I were to know, I would feel obligated to report it. And I don't have that obligation right now where because uh, I don't have the information. So three to five years from now, everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people are, are, are making the statements out there that the sports betting landscape is going to look totally different than it does right now. Do you agree with that statement? Do you think there's going to be a lot of differences? Say we'll, we'll make it around number five years from now um, across the U.S. Five years from now, I think we'll see some consolidation. I think right now we have, uh, you know, dozens of operators and some only very big ones. I think all the smaller operators, the newer operators are basically just acquisition targets at this point. How much business, how much share of the market can we get? And then hopefully sell that to one of the big operators. So five years down the road, I think we'll start to see some consolidation. Um, I also think that we're going to have some impact on the offshore market. I think we already are having some offshore impact on the offshore market. People thought that it would never change. And I disagree there because I believe that this next generation of bettors are going to start off betting at in the regulated market compared to where when you and I were coming up, we had to bet in the offshore or with a local bookmaker market. So I think the next generation will basically start with the regulated market. And eventually that will uh, take a toll on the offshore market. So consolidation, and I do believe that we'll start to see a little bit of deterioration of the offshore market uh, as it is. No doubt. And I think as soon as, you know, we get these monstrous states like Florida and New York and Texas and California, uh, you know, on a regulated, you know, betting, under-regulated betting, I, I think it's end days for, for those because I, it's, you can talk about line shopping. You can talk about getting better odds. Yeah, all that makes sense. But at the end of the day, getting back to the casual user, how easy do I get money on? How easy do I get money off? If you're betting 50 bucks a game, it doesn't matter that you're getting 102 versus 105. Okay, it doesn't. You know, And that's what a huge number of people out there are betting. So completely agree. And I think in like five years time, it's realistic that all those states that I mentioned will have some form of, of regulated betting. And, you know, I think that's, that's what's going to be interesting because there's still like, there's a lot of states. There's still a lot of people who can't bet sure. in a regulated market. So, you know, if you win a couple of those states, you're going to be in a, a great position as a business to be successful. And, and I think we kind of seen it a little bit here with the power play in Florida by the, by the Seminoles trying to grab that monopoly. And then you've got FanDuel and DraftKings saying, well, we're going to put an amendment, you know, to, to allow anybody to operate sports betting. And, you know, it's, it's, it's big business, boys and girls. It's big business. And, you know, there's a lot of fighting happening behind closed doors in these legislators offices and, and lobbying going on. And it's, it's fascinating to watch from afar. Okay. Last, last thing I want to touch up on, you wrote a story about, you covered this whole thing about uh, this parlay Pat's character who, um, which was honestly just like a, a shocking thing that took place. And I say shocking because yes, this stuff kind of happens, but rarely does it happen with a, with a, with a person who actually had a little bit of kind of like, 
gambling fame you know there were articles and stuff and he was referenced about how he was successful as a sports better and it turns out he's a total scumbag um who was you know uh, what was he threatening players uh, what was your takeoff on this i mean i i was just shocked at the whole thing and um do you think there's more of this happening that we don't know about it's interesting because I've been trying to report on this and kind of see if I can get a gauge of the scope of the threats to athletes and how much of them are from gamblers. And we see it on Twitter. We see it in sports betting. We see it in fantasy. It's disgusting. And this person took it way, way too far. I mean, there were some just graphic uh, messages, direct messages that he sent to players, family members of players, uh, significant others of players. And it, it made me question his mental fitness for sure. Yeah. Um, he did get uh, five years of probation, probation, no jail time, which was a little surprising to me uh, for the degree uh, of, of his threats. Uh, I was anticipating jail time, but he did not. He got some probation. He was a young kid. I think he was 24 uh, when this was all going on. Uh, but it's scary that uh, that part of society um, and social media it just, they, they can't police it, you know, and it's very difficult. It's very interesting. I talked to the members of the FBI. They have a, a initiative uh, about sports integrity and, you know, they were part of the Parlay Pats case uh, when they investigated it. And, uh, they're going at it still looking for other uh, opportunities to find uh, these people that uh, frankly are not mature enough to place wagers. If you are someone that has to threaten or ridicule or come at athletes, coaches, referees on social media, then you shouldn't be betting. Frankly, you should not be betting. Either that or you're betting way too much where it matters way too much to you where you can't laugh it off if a bad call uh, or, or something goes against you. So it's very scary. It's very disappointing. And, and it's a really ugly part of, of the sports betting industry. I know you report more than give strong opinions, but do you think the sentence was too light? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a, I am firmly in the camp of you're young, you do stupid things, you deserve second chances. Firmly, you know, we don't need to incarcerate it. You know, people, everybody in the world out there who who makes mistakes. But I'm also in the camp of you've got to send a message, right? Like, if, if, you know, even if it's just a year or two of jail time, yes, that's a lot, but it's not something that someone can't overcome, but to just give probation for the grotesque things that somebody, I mean, again, this wasn't even just venting on their public Twitter stream. This was private messages to players. That's crossing a line way too far. Oh, and some of them, I mean, I don't want to go into it because it's too graphic, but they were like, you know, we're going to cut your slope with a dull knife, uh, beheadings, all kinds of just really gross, gross threats that how can it get any worse than that? Right. And I think we should note that according to the investigators, he was doing this to try to get in these players heads in advance. He did it to the Patriots in front of the Super Bowl and he bet on the Rams. Uh, you know, he was trying to use this to help his wagers. And that is just unacceptable and should never be taken too lightly because you know i don't know if you've gotten them but i've gotten some pretty ugly uh, remarks on twitter from people some threats type things or you know encouraging me to off myself or whatever and you know people go oh he doesn't really mean it that's fine but 
you know, I, I, maybe he doesn't. It still affects me, though. I can't control yeah. how that affects me, and it's troubling to me. So I, I, I agree with you. I wish we would have had a harsher penalty for him, uh, set a precedent a little bit. Look, if you're going to do this, you're facing jail time. Uh, unfortunately, the, the judge did not rule that way. Yep. Um, he is David Purdom. Of course, you can find him over there uh, on Twitter at David Purdom. ESPN Chalk covers all things gambling. And what about uh, that story you wrote just yesterday about that parlay with those golf winners? Insanity. I mean, that's that's crazy. Like, I, I, it was what? Talk a little bit about that because, you know, there's tons of parlay stories and you see mm-hmm. tickets all over the place. But this was this was fascinating. Yeah, it was 900,000 to one, or excuse me, 99, excuse me, was it 90,000 to one plus was the, were the odds on this it was a six, six leg parlay, two soccer games. And then the guy picked the four winners of the PGA tournament that week, the European PGA tournament, the LPGA and the senior PGA tournament. It's got all four winners and it came down the last leg of his parlay to hit was that eight hole playoff between Harrison, uh, Harris, Harris English, who, who made that putt and, and won him million dollars off a $15 bet and I thought one of the most interesting stats was I think it was the numbers were so dramatically close I believe Harris English won like 1.36 million dollars and I think the better like 1.1.37 million dollars so he won like a hundred thousand or ten thousand dollars more than English did so a crazy crazy story and you're right we get a lot of different parlays thrown at us I really like the ones that are attached to dramatic sporting events, like an eight hole playoff in the PGA. <laughs> That's the thing. It was eight holes of misery because <laughs> that was the final leg, right? That was, right? that was the last one. So every single playoff hole, every single last putt that was out there, you're, you're talking like a million dollars plus riding on it. And I've had some big sweats in my days, you know, cost me hundreds of thousands of dollars and you know, it's, it's exhilarating and exhausting in the same, in the same boat. And I know, I think you talked to the guy, is there any hedging at all going on here? I mean, again, he's probably not like a a high volume player. If he's, if he's making, you know, $15 parlay bets on, on random golf, but like at some point in time, when you see that, like you've got a million dollars riding, I'm sorry, you, you, there's gotta be a way to hedge back and, did, did he ever acknowledge or or talk about that aspect of, of that of that parlay? Well, I did not speak to the better, just to be oh, clear. Okay. He only spoke okay. to, to Betfair, the exchange okay. over there. It has a sports book, a branch that they took it. They did not offer up uh, the better who remained uh, anonymous. But you're right. I mean, that was the question that I would have definitely asked him. Hey, did you hedge? Now, <laughs> it's not always as easy just that, oh, I'm going to hedge and make some money. you got to have does he have $500,000 to get down or even a hundred thousand? Can he get it in at that time? You, you just don't ever know. So it's always yeah. uh, seems like the obvious thing is to, to hedge, 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 but it's not often as easy as it would think. Absolutely. It's a great point, but uh, lots more of those stories. I'm sure we're going to see over time. David always does a great job with them. So again, check out his stuff over at ESPN and uh, thanks for jumping in today, David. It's been a while since we chatted and uh, it's always good catching up. You too, Dan. Thanks for having me. All right. That's going to do it for this episode of the Get a Grip podcast. Do us a favor. If you enjoy this show, uh, leave us a review over on iTunes and uh, go back and listen to some of the other stuff we do. Again, these are all very evergreen podcasts. So uh, if you got a long road trip coming up, 
hey, download them all. You can hear my voice for seven hours. You will absolutely hate me by the end of it, but uh, hopefully you'll learn a little bit more about sports betting. Maybe you have a few laughs along the way. And uh, next week, I will be out. I'm heading to Colorado. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fund all my sports books from the 20-some-odd uh, sports books that are out there and uh, grab all those bonuses. Um, so uh, won't be me next week here on this podcast, but soon enough, uh, Dave and myself will return here on Get a Grip. But for David Purdom for jumping in this uh, week, I am Dan Bach. Thanks for listening. Check us out always over there at Sports Handle, and we'll talk again soon. See you, everybody.